All right, hello everyone. Um, very glad to be here and uh, bring you the Word of God. And so um, I have the privilege and honor to uh, talk about the Bible. Actually, Pastor Mark uh, said that we could choose something that's been on our heart and uh, it just happens to be the Bible. So um, I'm, we're going to talk about the Bible today, but before I do that, I'm going to pray. So um, if you all could bow your heads and pray with me to get started, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to help me bring the word to you today. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and love you and um, worship you through this time. But I also ask that, um, that you could provide to us hearts of good soil, humble hearts and uh, help us to be eager for the word of truth that you've given us through scripture and help us to trust you um, even through this teaching that's going to be challenging for for many that are going to be hearing this tonight um, i pray that holy spirit could really open our eyes and ears to uh, accept the truth and so um, help me teach it clearly and accurately and bring it faithfully lord and and so bless this time um, that we could all be uh, surrounded by um, really your truths in Scripture and that we could be growing in, to be more like Christ. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, um, again, you know, I have the privilege to talk about the Bible uh, today and uh, in recording fashion, which is a little strange for me. I always prefer uh, seeing, um, you know, your faces while I'm talking. So, um, you know, this is going to be really informal. Um, you know, I do have notes, but I'll probably bounce around a little bit um, and uh, just to keep my train of thought. And uh, hopefully you guys can follow along. The, the title or the topic that I want to talk about today is the reliability of the scriptures. Um, how do you know you can trust your Bible? Um, it's almost a scary question to kind of ask for a lot of people because a lot of people think that there are not real um, good answers to some of these hard questions. But uh, um, hopefully I can answer um, just a small portion of the many questions people have about scripture. So the title of today is the providential gift and reliability of the scriptures. The providential gift and the reliability of the scriptures. And, and so, um, so let me just ask you guys out there, first of all, uh, you know, all of you guys have uh, probably more than one Bible, right? I mean, not even counting your Bible app on your mobile phone which is popular to use today, um, but, you know, um, you guys have Bible translations that are English. Um, you guys are probably have uh, either an ESV Bible, um, a New King James Version Bible. Um, some of you might be using an NASB Bible, and then some of you uh, could be even using an NIV Bible, and uh, all those Bibles are perfectly fine to use, and um, there are, uh, you know, Bibles that are pretty well well known and used today. Um, so I'm just going to ask you guys, if somebody asked you why you trust in the Bible, how would you answer that question? How do you know that there aren't errors in the Bible? And uh, how do you know that someone down in history, I mean, it is the year 2020, how do you know that someone didn't take the Bible at some point in history and changed it? Um, how would you answer these questions, right? And so today, uh, the Bible has been under attack by liberal scholars, atheists, academic institutions, scientists, even public school teachers, right? I mean, we are talking about just, you know, this is a book that is constantly um, under attack and dismissed as either, I have a whole list here, uh, the Bible has errors, the Bible has been changed or corrupted, the Bible has lost its meaning during the translation process, 
The Bible is a fairy tale. The Bible has no evidence for truth. The Bible is only perfect in its overall teachings, but not in its text. The Bible canon is wrong. I mean, some people will even dispute the 66 books we have is the incorrect books or it's missing books. The Bible was written by human writers, and so they have human flaws. Some have said that. The Bible is true except for the supernatural parts. Um, the Bible is not meant to be understood, believe it or not. There are pockets of those who would call themselves Christian who will say the Bible is a mystical book and that um, the secret stuff belongs to God. And the Bible is not revealing God's truth. It's God's truth constantly in riddles and puzzles um, that uh, only God has the key to. And so... There are, some, some would say that it's arrogant to say you can understand the Bible. So there was a movement for that too. Um, and then there's some who will say that the Bible is not clear, meaning that, the, that God purposely obscured the truth, uh, making it very difficult to understand. Um, and then the final one that post, you know, been influenced by the postmodern movement, it's the Bible's interpretations are relative. Um, so there is no way for you to know what the true interpretation is. Um, that's for God to know. So we should read it and fill ourselves with the words of Christ, but no one can really tell anyone else that they know the true interpretation. Well, the Bible has something to say about all that. And if you go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So all of scripture, you know, all true believers have always believed that scripture is breathed out by God. And uh, some translations will say inspired by God. Um, it's another way to say that God breathed the Bible into life. Um, it's the same type of imagery and concept that was written about Adam being built from dust, that God um, breathed into man's nostrils and brought him to life. And so it is the breath of God that gives life. Um, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So if you told the Apostle, Paul, uh, Apostle Peter, okay, if you actually met him face to face during a time and said, um, Scripture might have errors, um, I think you're, you're going to have a hard time convincing the Apostle Peter that the Bible has errors, okay? The Bible has mistakes. Um, he, wasn't see, he doesn't seem to be too concerned by the fact that God used people to bring the Word of God to, to them. And so those are just a couple of Bible verses I just wanted to start off with. And uh, we can end this session with more because um, basically I'm going to split this teaching into two parts. Um, the first part is where I want to talk about just uh, how to answer the question, how do we know no one changed the Bible? It's a very specific question, but once you have some confidence in how you can answer that, um, you'll it actually answers partially many of the other questions. So it's, it's, it's sort of related with each other. How can we be sure that nobody went and changed the Bible? I'm just going to answer that question um, by using some history. Um, if you guys have been talking to me in the last few months, uh, and uh, I think even one of the Q&A sessions, I mentioned one of the books I was reading um, was uh, this book right here. It's uh, The King James Only Controversy. Can You Trust Modern Translations? It's by Dr. James White. Um, it's probably not a book that a lot of people are, you know, running to read right now, but I think you should. Um, I think 
a lot of people don't understand this controversy, the King James only controversy, um, because we've been a bit sheltered. For a lot of us, you know, I um, I got baptized at Lighthouse in San Diego, you know, and so in San Diego they, they were using the uh, NASB Bible at the time, and at some point we um, kind of did a switch to ESV. And uh, now I believe, uh, you know, Pastor John went back to the NASB. So it's just, um, I'm very familiar with, you know, basically just three translations, NASB, ESV, and when I was in college, I read the NIV at times. And, uh, and I think when I was really young, I had a new King James Version Bible too. But I didn't really understand the English uh, translations that well. Um, you know, uh, I figured, but I, I ne and I didn't really have a problem with it either. Like there were different translations. Uh, I never struggled with the fact that the, you know, uh, one could be more accurate than the another. Um, but there is a group of Christians, um, particularly here in the United States, um, that believe that the King James Version Bible, it's not only the better translation, there are different categories of these King James Version Bible churches, um, all the way from people who just simply say, I just like that translation better. Um, some would say that the King James Version Bible uses the best manuscripts for the translation. Um, and then some would say that the translation's most accurate out of all the English translations. And then the extreme groups would say that the King James Version Bible is the is the most perfect English translation, meaning that it's the only one you should rely on, um, and that it was supernaturally preserved by God. Okay, so there's a huge spectrum of very extreme beliefs on Bible translations that, you know, I'm personally sheltered by. And maybe some of you are as well. Um, maybe some of you have ran into some others that have strong views on which Bible translation you should use. Um, and I'm not talking about someone who says, I, I recommend NASB because it's a, it's a more literal translation. I think that's a fine recommendation. But once you start telling people that, um, you know, other Bible translations are of Satan and that it will be a misguided book for you, then uh, you better be right. I mean, if you're going to say something that strong and you're going to stand behind judging others on what type of translation you're using, um, you better make sure you're 100% right. And unfortunately uh, for that group, unfortunately for that group, unfortunately for us, there's been a lot of work done about this particular issue about the English Translation Bible. So let me just give you... Um, I guess a little bit of a landscape here. Um, from my study, uh, I was a bit shocked that, you know, of how many people still use the King James Version Bible. And just to be clear, not everyone who uses the King James Version Bible is part of this extreme supernatural God preserved, you know, only in King James Version. Uh, almost, you know, I would call it a cult, you know, if it gets that extreme. Um, they're not all part of that, but um, there are still about a little over 50% of people in the, in the United States who, through a survey, would say that they're reading the King James Version Bible. Um, the King James Version Bible is, uh, was um, published in the 1600s. And um, it's also called, some people might call it the authorized version because it's the only Bible in England at the time that was authorized by the king himself. Um, and so sometimes it's nicknamed the authorized version. And so that was the first published and authorized English Bible in history. Um, there were other Bible translations that were in English prior to that. You guys have probably heard some of these names in church history. William Tyndale, um, he had a Bible translation. John Wycliffe. Um, John Wycliffe was actually known uh, to have probably translated the first complete English translation, but it wasn't widely published um, when he was translating it, but he had a completely tr uh, English translated uh, Bible. Um, there were other pockets of believers 
in the 1500s and 1400s that um, had a portion of the New Testament or the Old Testament translated into English, um, but it wasn't until 1631 that it was first published in England um, for, you know, uh, for mass people to be using. So you have the King James Version Bible being used ever since then. Um, then we also, uh, you know, the ESV Bible. We use the, uh, a lot of times in our church, we read from the ESV Bible. Um, and uh, ESV Bible and the NASB Bible, uh, they're both considered to be conservative translations of scripture from the original texts. Um, and so uh, they would be called the literal translation. So we basically another way you could say it is that it tries to use the exact words that's in the original languages of the Greek, the Hebrew, and the Aramaic. Those are the three languages in the original manuscripts. And so you have the NASB Bible uh, that is probably was more popular 20 years ago, but it's been trending down. Um, and then you have the uh, ESV Bible that just recently uh, is a more recent translation in the last 10 years or 15 years. I can't, I can't remember exactly, but it's more recent. And the ESV Bible has been trending up, but the Bible that's being sold the most today is the NIV Bible. And the NIV Bible is not what you would call uh, a literal translation um, it's more of what you would call a dynamic translation. And, and so they're, the translators with the NIV Bible try to make the Bible easier to read, easier to understand in the context of our language. And so you have the NASB ESV at the literal translation. You have the NIV at the dynamic translation. Um, and then you have the King James Version Bible uh, kind of in the middle where uh, it is a conservative translation, not as literal as NASB or ESV, but it is a, a, what they would call, a lot of people would say, is the most beautiful translation because the language um, uses Old English, you know, a very lofty language for the majesty of God. Um, the, there's a bit of a poetic uh, rhythm in the, in the poetry of the Bible, in the portion of the Bible, like Psalms um, and, and books like that people tend to gravitate towards the King James Version um, Bible primarily because uh, it's, it's a, a literary masterpiece in regards to um, the readability and the majesty and the lofty language, the, the poetic um, alliterations that it uses. And so, um, you know, so you have the NIV Bible being the top seller but you have the King James Version Bible being the top read Bible translation um, of being a little over 50%. And then the ESV and the NASB kind of trickle down below. But here's the complication. Now we live in the year 2020. Um, there are probably somewhere around 450 different English Bible translations now. And that's one of the reasons why it has become a bit confusing, but that's also one of the reasons why the King James Version only movement gained a lot of steam um, because people didn't know which Bible translation to use. A lot of it is lack of education. A lot of it's a lack of knowing uh, what Bible manuscript science is like and how complicated it really is. Um, and so because of that, uh, unfortunately, these groups take advantage of, um, of certain believers and uh, get them to buy into the fact that the King James Version Bible is the only one you should read. It's the perfect translation. It's the one that God preserved. It's the one that um, is, is actually inerrant or infallible. So, so that's where Dr. James White is coming from in this book. But when you read this book, um, you know, you learn a whole lot more about how we got the Bible. And, and so the reason the first part of the, I guess I, I call it this the providential gift and reliability of the scriptures. Why do I say providential gift? So let's go back to the original question. Can you trust your English translation? Um, the short answer is yes, you can trust the NASB, ESV, the NIV, the King James Version Bible. You can trust that the New King James Version Bible. So I, I, at least 
you know, those are the ones that scholars will say that actual um, reputable um, scholars were behind the translation process. Out of the 450 English translations out there, um, you know, it's hard to say, but some of them get to a point where it's such a dynamic translation that it goes way left field. And um, there are some translations that would, uh, is questionable because they changed some of the pronouns into female pronouns to try to be um, less uh, male-oriented. Um, that's the, the, the New Living Translation will try to do that to be more inclusive towards women and things like that. So that's more of the culture uh, reading into the text, and we would say that that's probably going too far on the dynamic level. Um, so, But in, at least we can say, we're, when I'm talking about the Bible translations, um, let's, let's just keep it the scope at ESV, NASB, King James Version Bible, and NIV. And Dr. James White will say that all four of those translations are perfectly uh, reliable translations that he actually grew up on the King James Version Bible, but um, but he's not he's obviously not part of the King James Version only movement. In fact, he wrote the book criticizing this movement, um, saying that the movement is uh, it causes a lot of confusion, it causes it rouses a lot of passion and debate that is unnecessary. It makes people feel guilty where it's not necessary, and so um, so. Dr. James White is making a case that the King James Version only movement has logical fallacies in it that I won't get into, unfortunately, in this teaching. That's not the point of this teaching. But I do want to tell you one thing. He says something very interesting about how we receive the Bible. And, um, and I just want to say that the Bible was not given to us miraculously. The Bible was given to us um, providentially, all right? And um, I know that we believe the Bible is preserved by God, by the Holy Spirit, in the fact that it, we, we believe as true believers the Bible is inerrant. We believe the Bible is infallible, all right? Inerrant, no errors. Infallible, meaning that it's incapable of, of, of teaching anything that's er erroneous or false. It's incapable of it because um, the Bible itself is so connected with the character of God that you can't even, um, you can't detach it from the character of God. So being that it's breathed out by God, directly credited to God as the author, um, it is God's character that's on the line if you criticize scripture. And so that is the doctrine of inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. But let me just talk about these two words. We, um, the word miracle, it's an overused term in our, in our day and age. Um, you know, if you're driving in a parking lot and uh, you start praying and you, you know, and you look around and you see a open spot and it was, it's like right under the sh shaded tree, you know, uh, very likely you may think to yourself, it's a miracle, you know, I got a, I got a parking spot. And, um, you know, that, that type of thinking in our society, we call those things miracle. Like, you know, um, we find, like, if you find a dollar bill on the ground, oh, wow, it's a miracle. You know, some people have very low standards on what a miracle is. And I think that's one of the problems about, you know, how the Bible uses that word and how we use that word. But a miracle is really a direct and explicit, an observable intervention of God, supernatural power by breaking natural laws, okay? So natural law, we speak of physical laws in this world that we rely on every day in time, space, and matter, and I'm not trying to lose you guys, but, but that is the proper way to describe this. We live in space, time, and matter, right? And God can break something about those three things to display uh, what the Bible would call a sign and wonder. And a sign and wonder is literally what we mean by miracles. Um, so miraculous healings of blind people receiving sight instantaneously. For that to be done providentially, um, you know, you would have to know how, which part of the tissue in the eye that needs to be repaired. And also the eye is a very precise organ 
you would need to know exactly the precision of how to repair that tissue in a way where that person can not only see something, but see accurately. And so that's why we would call that a miracle. You know, something happened there that, that goes beyond human explanation. Um, and so Jesus does this, you know, multiple times, um, changing the water into wine, uh, ferment, fermentation and, and bypassing the time it takes to do all that and, uh, and turning it into a wine that someone drank in that wedding party and said that you saved the best wine for last. I mean, this is what we would call supernatural miracles. Now, I, I know you guys know that, all right? But, I, but providence, all right, providence is God orchestrating his will within the flow of natural law that we daily rely on, like a symphony of events um, that looks really like normal history. It, it looks like a, a regular, uh, just a regular actions and events that's happening within the, the physical laws we're used to. Okay, so the book of Esther in the Bible is one of the best examples of God providentially saving Israel by using uh, Mordecai and Esther as chess pieces and uh, Satan using Haman as a chess piece, but God is never explicitly mentioned in the whole book. Um, and there's no prophet ever mentioned explicitly in the whole book. The whole book is just like a regular story. But when you read it, clearly, um, you know, Esther is being used by God to save um, the people of Israel. And so it's one of those things where it just looks like natural history. So even in the Old Testament, where miracles were happening, you know, with Moses and coming out of Egypt and there were the 10 plagues, and the Old Testament has no problem of explicitly mentioning miracles. You have to remember that there is a book in the Old Testament, like the book of Esther, that tells a story of God providentially even helping. And so the absence of miracles is also the norm in Scripture. Um, and so just know the difference between miracle and providential. So now here's the one thing I want to try to do. Because if I asked you guys, which one are you guys more impressed by? You guys, most people would say, um, I want to see a miraculous sign. I mean, that's what's more impressive that's what's more compelling. And, and I think that's where people are um, sometimes not as impressed by how we got the Bible. Because when you start reading upon the history of the Bible, they go, um, it, just looks, it just sounds like normal history. Um, how do we really know the Bible is the Bible? It just sounds like all like normal history. Um, and so uh, I'm going to read you guys a quote by John MacArthur um, explaining why in his mind... The doctrine of providence is actually uh, more impressive than a miracle, and um, let me just let me just read the quote to you guys, and uh, I think you guys will see, and then I'm going to build off of that. So here's a quote by John MacArthur. This is actually him talking in one of the the recent um, pan, virus pandemic videos that he was addressing to the church. So you guys, maybe some of you guys have seen it. Uh, I'm going to read it right here. So the question that Pastor MacArthur received was, um, you know, what's the doctrine of providence? So this is MacArthur saying, so, quote, I like to define the doctrine of providence compared to miracles. A miracle is when God suspends natural law to do something outside of natural law. And without natural law and against the grain of natural law, that's a miracle. Walking on water, whatever it is, raising dead people, whatever our Lord did, that suspends natural law and supernaturally invades time and space and acts in a divine way that has no human explanation. Providence, in my mind, is a greater miracle than a miracle because it's God accomplishing his own ends and his own purposes, not by suspending natural law, but by taking all the elements of natural law and blending them together in a masterful way that he achieves his purpose but never interrupts what is the natural and normal course of things. This is providence. It is God not suspending circumstances and acting. It is God taking all the contingencies, all the actors, and all the activities, and all their thoughts and words, and somehow out of all that, somehow pulling it all together to create 
exactly what he wills to do. That is a far more massive miracle than just suspending natural law and acting. All right? So that, in, its, uh, in a nutshell, all right, to me, I was very, uh, you know, I found that quote very compelling, primarily because, yeah, I think in my mind, miracles are usually the more impressive thing. And providence is the less impressive thing, boring thing. Um, you know, where's God in providence, right? I mean, we don't get impressed by providence. But let me ask you guys this. If you explained your testimony to someone, isn't that you explaining how God providentially saved you? I, you know, I won't say it's impossible that someone would say it. But rarely, you know, we are... We're not going to be saved by lightning bolts and angels singing behind us. It's not that, you know, we were blind and we can physically see and then we became a believer in Christ by seeing some type of miracle. God providentially saved you. And that's why we share our testimony, people, because it's a testimony of what God did in our lives, in each of our lives. And all of us have a testimony. All of us have a story to share about how God opened our eyes and there was that moment or there was this season, you know, there was this time period where you kept exploring it and pushing through and finally something clicked and you realized, I'm a lost sinner. I need Jesus Christ. This world is temporary. This world is completely meaningless without God and it just clicked. And um, I still remember for me, I sat down with the pastor when I was somewhere like around, um, I think I want to say 12 years old, 13 years old, um, something like that, somewhere around that age. And um, I wasn't a believer quite yet, and but I was going to church. I, I went to church for years, and the, I just confessed to the pastor. I just said, I don't think I'm saved. I, 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 I like church. I think Christian people are nice, but... It's, it's just too hard for me to believe it. And I just started asking him questions. And uh, I asked him really, you know, big questions like, well, what's the meaning of life? Why would God make me go through this where my father passed away when I was nine? And why would he make my mom be a single mom? And why would, you know, why would God do this to us? You know, I asked those questions. I asked questions like, um, you know, how come, you know, if God is real, that he's hiding himself? How come isn't it? Why isn't it more obvious? You know, um, and then I asked questions like, you know, uh, this is my thinking back then, but I couldn't figure out how come the Bible doesn't mention a lot about dinosaurs when there's bones everywhere. It's clearly the, the earth is like millions and millions and millions of years old. And so I didn't think that that could reconcile with the Bible. And the pastor, I just remember his reaction to that question. He goes, man, that's a strange question. I don't know why are you, why are you even struggling with that? And I was like, I was like, how, how are you not struggling with that? I remember that was my response to him. How are you not struggling with that? And he basically, um, first of all, he pointed me to a couple of passages. Uh, Genesis 1, God created everything, right? And then kind of went through the Genesis account. But he also pointed me a couple of passages in Job that mentioned uh, the Leviathan, right? And um, that there, there are some mentionings of creatures that could be considered dinosaurs. And I go, okay. Um, so... Um, I mean, all that to say is that was a day where I would particularly say that something happened in my heart. Um, and I, it's not that he literally, I, I can't, and this is where it's hard to explain. What, did, was it that he convinced me? Uh, or was it that I wanted to be convinced? Was it that, you know, we, the, the, the explaining how you got saved, um, it's not a precise I know exactly what happened in my brain and my heart, but something clicked, right? And then when you read scripture, scripture says that it's God who reveals his son to you. In Galatians chapter one, when Paul was blinded, right, on the road to Damascus, he says that it was God who had the mercy to reveal the son to him, you know? And then when Peter said that, Jesus, you are the son, the Messiah, in Matthew 16, Jesus said that flesh and bones did not reveal this to you, but it was the Father. And, and so 
Later on, as I became Christian, I realized that this was obviously a gift from God. And, uh, and that's how you, we, we share that. But that all happened providentially. When we talk about the Bible, all right, when we talk about the complete Bible, all right, because the Bible was written over a span of 1,500 years. It has 66 total books, um, you know, and it is a, uh, you got 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. Um, you've written uh, by at least 40 human writers, okay? Um, it was written originally with Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. You have a, uh, a book that has um, been translated, I mentioned earlier, 450 languages, uh, or 450 total languages, actually, um, is the right way to say it. I said 450 English translations, so sorry about that if I confused you guys. Um, that's a lot of translations. Uh, so no, there's not 450 English translations. It's 450 languages that it's been translated into. Um, but, you know, there has been found 25,000 total fragments of Bible manuscripts, you know, around the world. And that's a lot compared to any ancient book. Um, I think Homer has, uh, I would say, from my study, 1,300 manuscripts. And it's considered probably the best preserved ancient document, at least one of the top ones. So you can see the gap is huge. And so, yeah, the Bible, it, the whole book, it's a, it was given to us as a gift providentially. And um, the, the signs and wonders eventually faded away. And I know not every Christian believes that, but I believe that that's the correct way to, to read the scriptures, especially um, when Paul is telling Timothy to, to use some wine for his stomach ailment. He didn't say, go find a healer or go pray that it's going to get go away. Um, you know, it was clear that over time, the healings and the miraculous signs were not as frequent as time went on um, up until the apostles were getting executed. And so again, up until even Paul went, got executed. Um, and so from that point on, after the book of Revelation um, that was given to the Apostle John in, in his late age, and his 90, probably age anywhere between 90 to 100, um, you have a lot of history to read. Um, and so people kind of go, they really just throw something like, well, the Bible was changed by someone at some time and that's why it's been corrupted and uh, you can't trust it. So let me now address that question. So that was just my intro, introduction. Um, the Bible is given to us as a gift providentially and God preserved the scriptures providentially, not supernaturally, not miraculously. Um, some people would say it's more impressive that the Bible came and fell from the sky with lightning bolts, light, angels singing behind it with the voice of God from heaven that this is the book you need to listen to or you're going to get punished, you know, or you're going to be rewarded if you obey it. So some people would say that's the more impre impressive thing. How come God didn't do that? Well, I want to just make a case for you today that God did something much more amazing by providentially um, preserving the scriptures. And um, that's... I'm going to be referencing this book, so if you guys want to read this book, I really recommend this book, by the way, um, if you guys want to have a stronger grasp on uh, apologetics and defending scripture, I think it's a fantastic uh, book. Thanks to Pastor Mark for that. And um, so Dr. James White, he compares the Christian Bible to the Quran, okay? Um, the Muslims have a holy book too, and it's called the Quran. And in... 632 AD, after the prophet Muhammad died, there was a civil religious war um, about who's going to basically take his place. And this holy war was called the Battle of Yamama, okay? And it is a, a battle between um, one self-proclaimed prophet and another prophet who was, who was chosen by committee. Um, according to Muslim tradition by the name of Abu Bakr. 
Now, I know some of you don't like history, so I might have already lost you guys by now, but at least start paying attention at this part, okay? So the Muslims, the way they got the Quran was that one man, first of all, it was only written by one person, and it was written by um, Muhammad the Prophet, okay? Mm -hmm. So just, just bear that in mind. The Muslims always try to say that the Quran is more accurate than the Bible, but and their reasoning is, well, we know we we had one single author that God supernaturally used. All right, so that's their argument. But remember, the Bible has forty human writers that you know in a span of fifteen hundred years. Um, the Quran was written in a span of one person's lifetime by one person. Okay, so maybe that doesn't. That's not the thing that maybe makes it clear like why you can't trust the Quran. What, what happened after Muhammad died is very interesting. In 632 AD after the Battle of Yamama, you got Abu Bakr who basically ended up winning the battle. Okay, He ended up collecting all the Quran manuscripts in a central committee so that there was one governing authority that had all the manuscripts. Now think about that. That's the way a book that is supposed to be a plenary inspiration from God can be changed very easily if you had one governing central authority that had control over all the manuscripts. And that's Dr. White's argument, and I find it extremely compelling that that's right. If the Bible, if people want to say the Bible was changed, you have to somehow prove, then prove that someone had access to every single manuscript at some point in time. And that never happened. And in fact, all the way up to 300 AD, Christians were being so persecuted that that's why the 300 AD Council of Nicaea, finally, when they came together and basically, hey, let's talk about what, you know, what, what letters you've been reading. All these Christians were hiding behind underground churches. Um, they were hiding behind caves, meeting underground places because they didn't want to be killed. Um, finally came out and talked about what type of manuscripts they had and what they were reading. And that's why around 300 AD, the canon of scripture was uh, officially determined. It wasn't because the Christians didn't know what books until then. Um, up until then, the Christians were being either tortured or killed and they're running away for their lives. Which is actually another strong argument um, of God's providential protection of the scriptures. Um, not all the churches had all of the New Testament the first 300 years. And at first, you kind of go, well, that sounds strange. I mean, why wouldn't God want everyone to have that? Well, I mean, they still had the, whatever scripture they had was still obviously fruitful for them. But the, 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 but that answers your question. The first 300 years, the manuscripts were all scattered throughout the, the region around Israel, the Roman Empire, basically both Eastern and Western Roman empires. And no one, no central governing authority had all the manuscripts. And that is, again, the best argument we have on what God has done. And this is why I go back to John MacArthur's quote about what God has done with scripture is more massively impressive than a book falling from the sky with the voice of God like a miraculous sign. Because what God did through history after that in a providential manner of allowing the Christians to be scattered and not even, even if the Christians tried to congregate in one place, it would have been extremely difficult to do so. Even if the Christians tried to gather all the manuscripts together, it would have been extremely difficult to do so. But for them to not even be mindful of trying to control the manuscripts and the letters, I mean, think about it. They, would, they were more worried about staying alive. So through the persecutions of the first 300 years, there was massive persecution. Um, you find 
just manuscripts just all over in different places, different church groups, um, even sometimes families who had their own portion of New Testament scripture um, that was only for them that they managed to somehow get. You, that's why we have fragments of manuscripts everywhere. And then finally in 300 AD, the council finally said these are the 66 books. Um, and so now they were formally recognized. And I'm not going to go into how that process was. That's a different teaching. Um, but again, think about that. In the, in the Quran, I already said that it was already, there was one central governing authority the first time. It happened the second time. So the Quran, after 20 years, approximately 20 years later, there was another crisis um, that a man, my, a man named Uthman um, was asked to save the nation before they differ about the book, about the Quran, as the Jews and the Christians did before them. So there were, there were traditionalists that were you know, rising up saying that, um, that there's too much argument over interpretation in books and stuff. So, so this man named Uthman, he did the exact same thing that Bakr did. He gathered up all the manuscripts. One central group had it, but this time they made changes to the Quran, it's documented, and they burned the old original manuscripts. So what is the only way you would know that it wouldn't have been changed? The original manuscripts in this particular case, and those were burned away deliberately, deliberately. And so when you compare the story about the Bible and the Quran, it, it doesn't even compare because um, even if someone tried, even the Council of Nicaea, remember, that's not all the Christians of the world that were there in Constantinople, all right, under the Emperor Constantine. Um, it's not all the Christians. They were only working with whatever, what providentially God allowed them to see, and it just so happens to be the 66 books, which we trust is the canon, all right? And, um, but the answer is, there were, there were manuscripts in Egypt. There was manuscripts in Syria. Um, it goes beyond than just Constantinople and whatever Christians were there. So even that council was not a council where they could uh, be certain that they had every single manuscript in the world. As opposed to the Muslims, um, they, they had every manuscript in the world in one location by one person. That's how you change the book, manuscripts. That's how you change the book. So the argument is then, why is it a gift of providence? Even if God gave you a miraculous way to give you the Bible supernaturally, and, and there was a story written down about how that happened, you know, think about the story of, of Joseph Smith, the golden tablets. This is a cult, right? This is how Mormonism was born. But let's just say if the Bible had some type of supernatural story linked to it, we, it still would not answer the question about how can you trust the Bible because someone could have, from that point on, still changed it later. Think about that. And I didn't realize this until I thought about it. That even if the Bible fell down from the sky, lightning bolts and, and angels, 1,700 years ago, 1,800 years ago, let's just say, something like that, and there was a story about it. Within the 1,800 years, there's still no guarantee that someone wouldn't have changed the Bible. But through God's providence and wisdom, by providentially persecuting the Christians, by providentially scattering the Christians, over time... Historians and archaeologists keep discovering manuscripts, Byzantine manuscripts in the Eastern Roman Empire, um, manuscripts in the Western Roman Empire, manuscripts in Syria, manuscripts in Alexandria in Egypt, and manuscripts in, in just, it just goes on and on and on. And, and right now we're in the year 2020, we have over 25,000 fragments of manuscripts that have been collected over time that we can keep going back and rechecking the other manuscripts we find. And this is why Dr. James White, his quote is that really we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to Bible manuscripts compared to any other historical document in the world. 
we have so much manuscripts that we can validate with one another that um, all biblical scholars already agree the, the manuscript disputes, any of those types of tensions have already been resolved. Copyist errors, yes, the original, some of the manuscripts found were copyist errors where there was an error in spelling and grammar and, you know, but don't get so alarmed by that because you have 5,000 other manuscripts you can compare it to. So the chances that 5,000 manuscripts are going to have the exact same copyist error um, is, is impossible, I mean, practically. Um, and so that's why Dr. James White is saying that this is how we got the Bible. By an honest study of the scriptures, this is how we attained the scriptures that we have now by comprehensively looking at all the manuscripts gathered, which in a podcast, Dr. James White said, now it's all digital, which is another amazing thought for him, which blows his mind because in the past, they had to actually rummage through every manuscript by enormous amounts of team teams to do it. Now everything can be searched and linked um, and cross-referenced on the computer. This is a day and age that the providence of God, by allowing the scattered manuscripts to be discovered over time, he created a method that strengthens and validates the Bible more and more over time rather than one single event or moment that is supposed to convince you that the Bible is supernatural. And so this is a gift, a providential gift from God. The Bible you have in your home, whether it's ESV, NIV, New King's Ver New King James Version or King James Version, um, Dr. James White says that you can trust all that. Those are all reliable scriptures that differ on perhaps how translators tried to tackle tough problems. Yes, there are some tough passages to translate, and that's, again, another different story. But this is how we got the Bible. It's a providential gift from God. And thank God it's not a supernatural one because it would not, never been able to answer one of the toughest questions is, how do we know no one changed the Bible? No one changed the Bible because no one had access to all the manuscripts ever, ever in history. Even from the moment that the Apostle Paul was writing, no one, no church had all the manuscripts of the New Testament. And so this is, um, to me, it was an, an incredible revelation. So I just wanted to share that with you. So with that said, I, I'll end it with this. Um, I just want to go back to Scripture, on, and I just want to read to you guys basically what Scripture says about itself. And there really is... Um, you know, no better words to trust than the Bible itself. It is without error, and we can be confident that what we have is the Word of God. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You can't even apply that verse if you think that there are words in the Bible um, that is erroneous. First Thessalonians chapter two verse thirteen. Um, this is one that a lot of people don't memorize, but I think this is an extremely important verse for this topic. And we also thank God constantly for this: that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is—the word of God which is at work in you, believers. He was saying that to the Thessalonian church. Um, and thinking about, think about that, that the Apostle Paul knew that the Lord was using them even at that time. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Matthew 7, 24. Psalm 19, 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Psalm 119.42 Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word.
Proverbs 1.23, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. The words. It's talking about the words. John 17.17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And this is the verse that um, is known as the one that refers to apologetics and why we should defend the faith. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And I think, guys, hopefully I gave you some ammo if anyone ever asks you that specific question is, how do you know somebody didn't just change the Bible? Well, if they just did their homework, they would just know that historically, it's not that simple. Um, God made that impossible, practically impossible. The persecution, the scattering of the Christians, um, and the fact that, that God had a decentralized way of, of just scattering the manuscripts around. And so that's the providentially providential gift and the reliability of the scriptures. You can trust in your Bible. Um, let me just maybe say a few statements. It requires a lengthier explanation, but I just want to say a few things. Yes, the original manuscripts were perfect, and it is God-breathed and all that, and nobody would disagree with that. But I'm going to go one step further and make you feel a little uncomfortable. And this is not something that a lot of people will jump on to believe. But I want to challenge you guys to think this. Even your English translation, ESV, NASB, you know, the ones I mentioned, even your English translation Bible is inerrant and infallible. But you go, but... The words are different from the translations. It's okay. God's not caught off guard. God knew. God knows those translations were going to be about. Okay? So it's not about that God is surprised by it. And also the fact that all those translators translated off the manuscripts that we would say are infallible and inerrant. And so the tr and, and there's too many scholars. There are too many Bible teachers that are that can hold these councils accountable, that if any Bible has an error, they will be immediately flagged. And, and so with these Bibles that have been tried and proven over time, you can rest assured that these are Bibles that are reliable, that you can trust. One last story, and I'll end with this. If there is a Bible with an error, it belongs in a museum. In 1631, when the English Bible was first published by King Charles, uh, within the year, they found out that the Bibles were having very strange typos and um, it, basically erroneous script statements being published. And within the year, the king found out about it and the people found out about it. So he ordered all of those Bibles to be gathered up so that they can be burned. And um, this particular Bible is called the Wicked Bible because um, it's one of the places that it was corrupted was in the Ten Commandments, where it says, thou, supposed to say, thou shalt not commit adultery. Someone removed the not out of it, and it says, thou shalt commit adultery. And it was called an erroneous Bible. So somehow, after that burning, um, most of them were burned, but in the modern times today, uh, the historians managed to find 11 of these, and uh, they're in museums today. So that's my argument. If a Bible really indeed has an error, it belongs in a museum. Rest assured, the Bible that you have is trustworthy. You can believe it's true, right? Hopefully that's helpful. And uh, I'm going to close this in prayer and let you guys think about that and meditate that. And don't believe it just because I say it. I want you really to be the Bereans and check in Scripture and do your own homework. Um, it's not true because I say it, right? I'm just a man. I'm just a regular guy. I'm saying I believe it's true because it's true. I believe it's true because it's consistent with the Word of God and it's based on the Word of God. But also the evidence is, is harmonious with the Word of God. All right? So um, 
bow your heads with me. I'm going to close this time, and uh, I'm just going to trust that the Lord will use this teaching, hopefully, to encourage and strengthen your faith. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, you know, if this teaching was somehow clear and, uh, and uh, helpful, um, that is only your doing, and I just want to say thank you for allowing me to have the privilege and uh, to, um, to teach about this topic that I'm, I'm very passionate about. I love your word, Lord, um, and I know the listeners here do too. Um, we, we trust what you say about your own book in the Bible, Lord. Um, but we, we do further test, be, further study because we want to be able to defend and answer reasonably um, and in gentleness and respect why we believe what we believe and why we stand where we stand. And so thank you for the wisdom that you've given to men like Dr. White who are fighting these battles in very tough places. Um, and there are many others, Lord. But Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the gift that you've given it to us and providentially. And thank you, Lord, for um, allowing us to, to bear fruit from your word because it is your words that are working inside of us and that we will live by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. That's our hope. That's, our, that's what we strive for. Thank you again, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.